Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james i have done a ton of podcasts about persuasion negotiation influence and all the things related to it. I've, I've talked with everybody from Robert Cialdini and his book, Influence, Bill Batide, The Power Bible, on and on. And I've written a lot about negotiation and persuasion. I wrote about this in Choose Yourself, uh, Reinvent Yourself, Skip the Line. But this book by Jonah Berger, Magic Words, and the subtitle is What to Say to Get Your Way. This book has talks very specifically about what language to use and why and when and what context, whether whether it's how to say no, how to ask for advice, how to make content go viral, convince someone to use your services versus someone else's services, how to make yourself more creative. It's just a great book about how important even small nuances in language can be. So these small nuances in language can make big impact in your life. And I've, by coincidence, I've used some of these techniques in my own life and I can attest that they're true. Jonah's got all the research, all the examples, so many tools, like for instance, questions to ask if you, you want to 
socially get along with people much faster? Or when should you use can't when saying no versus don't? In any case, we talk about a lot of these techniques. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let me know if you like this, share it with your friends, subscribe to the podcast. It really helps me a lot when you do that. So I, I hope people do that and have fun. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Joan, I don't know if you remember, you were on the podcast way back. I think it was like <laughs> 2015 or 2016 for Contagious. Yes. How are things going? Good. And I think you also were nice enough to have me back a couple of years ago for the catalyst. So we, we've yeah, talked yeah, a catalyst. few times before and I, I remember it as always far ranging and fun. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the same thing today. Excellent. Well, I really enjoyed magic words. You know, all your books are sort of about persuasion, viral content, basically how to use language in a weird way to manipulate people. And I don't mean that in a negative way. You want people to use language effectively, like how language is intended to be used. But what really drives your interest in this? Like, do you wish you were secretly a YouTube star with viral content all over the place? <laughs> or like, what's, what's underneath the surface here? Are you trying to crack the code? Yeah, I mean, so what I find interesting to me is that a, a lot of this is really math, right? And, and not math exactly, but like, think about reading a book. Think about watching a movie. Think about uh, reading a piece of content online. Think about watching a presentation. We often have reactions to those things. Man, I love this movie. Oh my God, this presentation was terrible. I enjoyed this part of the book, but not this other part of the book. Um, why? Why are we having those reactions? And, and how, by understanding the way language works, can we begin to parse this in some sense? You know, um, you were nice enough to interview me a number of years ago for my first book, Contagious. And that was my first popular press book. It, it changed my life to some degree. Um, uh, you know, I was first, uh, was only an academic and got an opportunity because of that book to work with all sorts of companies and organizations. But, but it kept making me wonder, you know, well, well, what, what about some of these popular press books? Like, why do they, why do, they do better? If, if we were to engineer a story right? When you're writing a book or when you're making a presentation or when you're doing an interview like this, there are a thousand, a billion different ways you could tell the same story. Do some ways of telling that story make it better or worse? And, and why? You know, if you, if you look at comedians, they often talk about, or you, you look at them, they often hone jokes. Um, they don't just sort of, you know, do a joke once and do it the same way. They do it different ways while they're getting ready for, um, you know, initially doing a, a tour or whatever it might be to see how it hits differently. And, and, and I've always wondered, you know, could we, by parsing language, could we begin to understand some of this? Could we put some math and some structure and some logic to, to why certain content uh, is more impactful than others? Well, and I'm going to skip around the book. Uh, you know, there were, like you just brought up how your first book opened the doorway for you to start working with organizations, you know, for instance, to help them make their own content more viral or figure out how people were reacting to their content. And, you know, about two thirds of the way through the book, you described this one scenario where, you found that when companies use the word you instead of an abstract third person, they got more response. For instance, you know, here's five ways to lose weight might not work as well as here's five ways, five ways you can, you lose, can weight. lose weight. Yeah. Now, I'm, I was curious about that. So first off, with all of this stuff, you describe various experiments. So 
what do the experiments say about you versus the passive? And then I have a, a follow-up question to that because you also suggest always have follow-up questions. <laughs> so stepping back for a second, I agree with almost everything you said except one small piece, which is this isn't just selling people on stuff they don't need or convincing people to do things they don't want to do. You know, if if a nonprofit uses these tools to get more attention for a cause about saving the environment or you know doing something good for the world, if using language helps us achieve our goals, um, you know, it, it's not that these tools or approaches or are, are either good or bad. They're just tools or approaches, right? It's it's I, how we I hundred percent agree. I, I and you know I didn't bring it up that aspect because I understand that if 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 you have a message you want to get across, there's no sense in using language that doesn't get that message across effectively. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Alain de Baton has this video. Uh, you know why nice guys need to use Machiavellian techniques because. <laughs> The evil guys are already using the most manipulative techniques possible. So more important than ever for the nice guys to get their message out, but you still have to use effective techniques in influence yeah. and persuasion and so on. Yeah. So so let's talk about you in in the company world, and we can also talk about it in sort of the more more personal world. So, um, uh, you know, first of all, did I did a big analysis? Um, uh, well, somebody else did some analysis of uh, social media pages, and I did a big analysis of help pages. So, uh, the page you go to, for example, when you have a problem with your computer or one of your electronic devices for for a big consumer electronics company. Um, and what we found is, in social media, when you use you, uh, your content gets more engagement. So rather than saying, this is a great book, saying, this is a great book for you, you'll love this tip versus here's a great tip. The word you, in some sense, is like a little bit of a spotlight. It's a little bit like a stop sign. Um, you know, I'm scrolling. Even though, even though and, and sorry to interrupt, but even though like when you say, here's a great tip, the implied next two words are for you. Yes. Oh, even, even if implicitly, and I like what you said there, implicitly it is, it is for you, but it doesn't explicitly have it, have it out there. And, and by the way, um, you, know, you could say, well, on, on social media, doesn't it feel hokey to say, to say you? And, and like any other approach, if it's used in a, in a bad way, it won't be effective. But, but you can be a little bit like a stoplight or a, a stop sign, right? I'm scrolling on social. There's all these different things there. Well, something says you, well, it's speaking to me, I better pay a little bit more attention. My sort of ears pick up and I'm, I'm more likely to, to pay attention to it. And so in a variety of different contexts, there's a, a bunch of different data that suggests that you can kind of involve us in the message more, gain our attention and make us want to look at something. And so that was that was neat. I said, okay, well, great. You, you is really useful. But, but then I did this analysis of customer service, basically help pages. So, you know, I have to do something with my computer or my phone's not working. Um, I go to their, their uh, website and have a bunch of pages and looked at the word you there. And if you is good, right, you should be helpful in, in both contexts. But that's, that's actually not what I found. In fact, in, in that context, you was bad. If there was more words like you on, on help pages, people actually found the pages less helpful, which is kind of the opposite of the benefit of you on social. And so in thinking about why, um, there's some, some other nice research that shows that, well, you in, in some sense can be uh, a little bit um, blame blameworthy. If, if it says, you know, you need to reboot your computer, uh, you should do this. It says, well, hold on. Why is it my job to do this? It puts the, the onus or the agency on me to solve the problem. It might make me feel attacked, like you were suggesting I, I caused the problem, or somehow like I'm the one that needs to do the work to fix it, rather than it being the device's fault. And so oh, you... Oh, also, I, I wonder if, and if I may offer my own, yeah. 
I wonder if maybe saying you in that context implies less leadership from the company, meaning, you know, if, if let's say I'm going to Apple's help desk, my, my iPhone doesn't turn on for some reason. Um, and, and it says, you know, maybe the question in the FEQ is, is written like your iPhone doesn't turn on. Here's what you should do. That's somehow less authoritative than here's what to do when the iPhone doesn't turn on. Like then it's very much like coming down from God on the 10 commandments. Like this is what to do. And so it's like personal and more authoritative. I think that's certainly a way to think about it. I think what what you also kind of said is rather than it being, um, you know, when your iPhone won't start, when the iPhone won't start, it sort of suggests that the fault is more the iPhone, right? Was your mm-hmm. iPhone won't fall? It suggests, well, maybe somehow your something you did, it's specific to you rather than to the device in general. If you if you had to say sort of who, who's the locus of fault, um, using you could put it more on you, the user, rather than the company or, or the device, which, which not surprisingly makes people go, well, well, what do you mean? This device isn't working. It's not my fault. It's, it's your fault. Um, you know, how, how dare you tell me that somehow it, it has to do with me? And so you, know, you by itself is neither good nor, nor bad. It has differing effects on, depending on, on the situation. And you can even see, so now moving sort of more to the personal life context, and you've probably seen this in your own life, but um, whether at work or um, in your personal lives, you know, you has this sort of way of, of kind of feeling accusatory if it's, if it's not used carefully. So, you know, um, in a work context saying something like, you know, did you, did you file that thing we talked about? Did you take care of this in a personal context? You know, did you walk the dog? Did you get that thing I asked you to do? It can easily fact, well, what, why are you telling me what to do? Why are you going after me? Um, well, really all you're asking is, did the dog get, get a walk? And so you can feel very accusatory, even if we don't mean it that way. And so we need to be careful about when and how we use that word. I see. So kind of like a, a rule of thumb is, like the walk the dog example is interesting because there might be a set rule in a household, you need to walk the dog every day. And when you say, did you walk the dog? It could be a little bit accusatory because it's like breaking the rules of the household. Just like, did, did you mess up your iPhone again? Like now we have to huh. tell you how to turn it. It's a little bit more accusatory. If it somehow feels even slightly accusatory, don't do it. But, you know, here's what I'm wondering though. There's, yeah. It feels like there's a third category. So there's okay. this kind of impersonal third person, which is like, here's how to turn on the iPhone. Then there's the you which in many cases, if it's relatable, like here's how, here's five tips how you could be a better speaker or here's five tips on how you could blah, blah, blah. Then it's like helpful. And let's say it's something, everybody who wants to be a better speaker or a better whatever will relate to it because they'll feel themselves in the you. But there's a third category which works very well, I think for, for viral. And I'm curious if you've looked at it, which is to use the word I. Like, I went from being a poor speaker to a better speaker. Here's five ways I did it. And people very much, they want to hear another person's story because it's, they could, they could, it's like a, it's like a, a free way they can ride my role, emotional roller coaster. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd say a few things. So, so first you definitely hold attention, but you can also do other things. If, you know, in an online review, I say, oh my God, you're going to love this product. 
sometimes people feel a little bit of reactance. They say, well, you know, how do you know what I'm going to like? How is it, how can you assume what I'm going to think? It feels like you're telling me what to think. And so I, I don't like it, but I certainly agree beyond you, right? You is just one word. It's a type of second person pronoun. I is also a different word that has uh, differing impacts, right? I can feel more personal. There's some nice research that shows in a customer service context. Um, when service agents talk about, I will solve your problem rather than, than you know, this is what we're, we're going to do to solve your problem. People believe more that they're actually going to do something uh, about the problem, right? Because they're taking ownership for what's going on. They're not just saying, you know, we as this colossal company are going to say, but I'm, I'm going to do this for you. Makes people feel like that person actually has the agency to take care of it. And so by no means am I saying, you know, the only word we should care about is you. This is just one small section of one small chapter of the book. But it's interesting to think about how these subtle shifts in language can have such a big impact. Yeah. Like thinking about it in a couple of contexts, like let's say you're on a date and you're very excited about the date. If the person you're on the date with keeps saying, oh, I like these people, or I like this movie, that could feel a little narcissistic. If they say, if they say to me, oh, you would love these other people, or they would love you, then it's like the person's including me in like her tribe. Yep. And so that, then it's inclusive. But I guess you would use I when you could use you, but there's a danger of being accusatory or insulting. And so I kind of pay, takes the responsibility first and lets you decide if you're going to ride my roller coaster or not. Yeah, and even like, take something. If I went up to you, let's say I was your boss and I went up to you in your cubicle and I said, Jonah, did you shit in your pants again today? <laughs> you might be insulted. But if I say, listen, every once in a while, I shit in my pants during the day. Here's what I do to solve it you need this information, go help yourself. <laughs> so I, I don't know where to begin my answer here, but I think, <laughs> I, think, I think what I would say is, you know, similar to the language you were talking about on the date, first, we do actually find it in conversation that conversations last longer when we don't just talk about ourselves, but people use words like you, right? It brings in, it brings in the audience. But when making recommendations, you can be a little bit dangerous and can evoke, evoke reactance. And so rather than saying, you know, you'd love these people, something like these people are great, right? It, it indicates that you know I have a certain attitude towards these people, but I'm not being prescriptive or telling you how to feel about it. I mean, a lot of these techniques, and yes, the the you uh, word is only one. There's a billion chapters in the book. We're going to get to them, um, but a lot of the techniques in the book are kind of related to in-group, out-group bias, and how much you want to create an in-group with the people you're talking to, or how much you have to be careful about being out-group. So for instance, you mentioned comedy as an example, and that's related to one of the final chapters in the book about similarity. Like you, it's always good in conversation to point out similarities and people relate to that. Like there's studies that show even if you and I had the same initials, we're kind of more inclined to be kind to each other than if we had different initials, which is a weird result. But, uh, you know, if, if in in comedy, you always want to when you're doing crowd work, when the comedian's talking to the crowd, you're always trying to find similarities because then if they're in the same tribe as you, they're more likely to laugh at your later jokes. And I think this works really well in negotiation and conversation. And you you point this out as well. But but this you versus not you is also a matter of deciding how much you want to include the reader in your tribe. When it's you, it's like kind of assuming you're in the same tribe. When it's more third person, that maybe is better to use when, hey, I'm in the tribe of the authority 
and you're in the tribe of people who might need help from authority. So, you know, when you're trying to create distance, authority versus non-authority. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree that some of the things relate to, to similarity and, and in-group, out-group. And I, um, I myself have done a bunch of research on those, those type of things. I wouldn't say, though, most of the book relates to that, right? So there's content, for example, on how asking people to be a helper rather than help makes them more likely to do what you ask them to do. Um, and that's certainly... Oh, that was fascinating, actually. Can you describe that one? <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. Um, so... One of the chapters is about agency and identity, the language of, of agency and, and identity. And so language not only sort of provides information, but it suggests uh, who we're talking to or what identities they, they might hold. And, and, and often as individuals, you know, we're, we're trying to get someone else to, to do something. We might ask someone to help us out, um, uh, you know, uh, help us do something. Or if we're a nonprofit, we might ask for something as well. We might say, hey, you know, can, can you turn out to vote? Um, be a, you know, please help us and, and go vote. Um, and we often use verbs like help or, or vote to encourage people to do something, but it turns out a, a small difference, a very subtle difference in language can have a, a big impact. They, they did a study, for example, many years ago where they asked kids to help clean up. It's a mess in a classroom, and they said, hey, you know, please help clean up. And for some students, they said exactly that, please help clean up. But for other students, they said, hey, please be a helper and clean up. Now, help and helper are almost identical, right? One just adds ER on, on the other end. And so you would think, well, not going to matter, but it had actually a 30% increase uh, in the percentage of students that, that helped. And you could say, well, maybe that's just you know kids and classrooms. How does this really matter? Well, there's another study that was done more recently where they mailed thousands of voters request to vote. Um, so sort of a get out the vote type uh, initiative. And for some people, they said, hey, you know, please vote. And for other people, they said, hey, please be a voter. Uh, again, infinitesimally small difference, right? Vote versus voter, one just adds an R on the end of what's already there. But they found that led to about a 15% increase in the percentage of people that, that turned out. And, and the reason why is, is pretty simple, which is that we can use language to describe characteristics or actions, or we can use language to describe identities. So I could tell you that I have a friend who runs, for example, or I could tell you I have a friend who is a runner. If you had to guess, if uh, my friend, if I said they run versus they are a runner, in which case do you think they, they run more? Uh, if I said they run or I said they are a runner? Probably a runner because I'm thinking the person does it every day, yeah. so he's good at it. It's a stable trait, right? Um, that's a case where you turned an action, running, into an identity, being a runner. Um, and it turns out that when we use identities, nouns to describe people, they're a dog lover rather than they love dogs. They're a runner rather than they run. Um, those aspects seem more lasting. It's not just something they do, it's something they are, and so that thing will be more persistent. But what that means is by taking actions, like uh, running, like helping, like voting, and turning them into identities, like being a runner, being a helper, being a voter, as long as those identities are desirable, we can motivate people to do what we wanted them to do by turning them into actions. So people say, oh, voting is great, but wait, this is an opportunity to be a voter? Now I'm more likely to do it because I want to claim that desired identity. Right. And, and, and again, and maybe I'm trying to turn everything into a nail with this hammer, <laughs> but it's like when you say someone's a voter rather than, hey, are you going to vote or please vote? You're putting them in a tribe and they're identifying if they get your letter and say, yeah, I'm a voter. They're putting themselves in the tribe. So now they have to act like a tribe member acts. 
they, they don't have to say, well, well, this person's asking me to do something I may or may not do. They're first identifying with some, you know, identity you're giving them. And then their brain is doing the rest of the work. Yeah, do I want to hold this identity? And if so, I want to, I want to take the action. And, and what you're right about is because it's about identity, right? If it's about a negative identity, the opposite happens. So, uh, you know, if I said, which is worse, losing or being a loser, you said, oh my God, being a loser is much worse. And it's a stable trait. Same, you know, which is worse, cheating or being a cheater? Well, being a cheater is, is much worse. And so research actually finds that, you know, in a classroom setting for trying to get people not to cheat, rather than tell them, well, don't cheat, telling them don't be a cheater, right? When cheating is now a thing that indicates that I'm a cheater, I'm now much less likely to do it because I don't want to hold that undesirable identity. And so I think this is needed in a number of ways, right? One, we can use it to sort of influence or persuade others, but we can also use it to make ourselves um, portrayed as, as one way or another. If we're writing a resume, for example, you know, rather than saying we're hardworking, saying we're a hard worker will suggest that trait is more long-lasting and more general. Rather than saying, you know, we're uh, creative or we're innovative, saying we're a creator or we're an innovator will suggest those things are likely to last and stick around. So same thing with motivating teams, right? Rather than saying, hey, you know, uh, I want you to lead more, say be a leader, right? As long as it's desirable, people would be more likely to take that action. You know, during this whole pandemic and lockdown, it really became clear, at least to me, how important mental health is. Like, it's so easy. Like, we we more or less, I feel like, take care of other types of health. Like, we don't want to feel bad physically. But sometimes when you feel bad mentally, there are things you can do to lift yourself. I remember I was having one podcast a long time ago, not the recent podcast with Stephen Kotler, but a long time ago, where he said, you know, everybody's got this baseline of happiness. And the one way to increase that baseline is through meditation, which is why I'm really grateful to the sponsor Headspace for sponsoring this episode. Headspace helps improve mental health through guided meditations, mindfulness practices, breathing, calming exercises, and so much more. Headspace uses scientifically proven benefits of meditation and mindfulness with modern practices through their experienced meditation teachers. So wide range of teachers, all different kinds of meditation. There are all the different areas of expertise. Ensure there's a teacher and content to help you, whether you're a first-timer, I've been practicing for years. They have the largest library of content with over 1,000 hours of clinically proven mental health exercises. So like, for instance, even as a kid and young adult, I was into meditation a little bit. But lately I find when I try to do it, I've been having trouble focusing on meditation. And so I'm grateful for a product like Headspace because they give guided meditations and it sort of reminds me what meditation is. Look, that was really important to me. I think it's important to a lot of people. Headspace has helped more than 100 million people worldwide. They can help you as well. So listen up. You do not want to miss this. For a limited time, all of you can try Headspace free, totally free. And I highly recommend it. You can try Headspace for free for the next 30 days by going to headspace.com slash altature. You won't find this offer on any other podcast. It's just me. So you must use my link, H-E-A-D-S-P-A-C-E.com slash altature to unlock all of Headspace free for 30 days. 
headspace.com slash altature. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So let me ask you a question. Have you used these techniques, like for instance, with your students in the classroom or in organizations that you've spoken with? This technique in particular, let's say you were motivating or let's say you were telling your students not to cheat. Have you found personal success with, with this particular technique? You know, there are so many different techniques uh, in the book. I think right now we're talking about the first chapter. And in the first chapter alone, there are probably five different buckets of approaches that people can use to increase their impact. Uh, I've used the help be a helper with my kids and have certainly seen that to work better, yes. That's so interesting. I don't, I can't recall if I've ever tried that with my kids. Kids <laughs> are a great laboratory. They are a great laboratory, yes. What I've used with my kids that have worked has worked is saying something like, instead of saying you shouldn't do this, I say something like, I'm disappointed that this happened. And then they feel really bad that they disappointed me. Yes. What's, yeah, and so, so I hear you. There is some work, though, that shows that the danger of doing that is now they're not doing the thing, not because they think it's bad, but because they don't want to disappoint you. And so I think one of, uh, one of the great challenges of being a parent is, in some sense, you want to instill someone with a value system without telling them what to do, right? You want to figure out a way to have them come to that conclusion on their own without being told to do it. Because if they're doing it because you told them, well, now when you're gone, if you say, don't eat, you know, don't eat junk food because it'll be bad for you. And they say, okay, I'm not doing this because dad told me to. Well, now when dad's not around, I don't, I don't have to do it anymore. Whereas I decide that junk food's not so good when, uh, you know, if I've been, if I come to that place on my own, um, then I'm much less likely to, to do it even when no one's around. So the challenge I find with being a parent as well is how you instill that value system without being too pushy. That's great. So like, for instance, let's say you want them to eat healthy foods. You could say, look, unhealthy people, have miserable lives and <laughs> die younger. And if you eat these this junk food, you'll be an unhealthy person, as opposed to saying, don't eat this food because it's unhealthy. Well, or, or saying, hey, how does this make you feel, right? Like, yes, it's maybe delicious now, but how does your stomach feel later? Um, do you feel like you have a lot of energy? Do you feel good? And if, um, and again, not, um, not telling them what to think, but encouraging them to realize, well, does this make me feel good or not? And if it, if it doesn't necessarily make them feel good, they, they've come to that conclusion on their own. This works even, I mean, you talk, have some discussion in the book about self-talk, 
this works even when you're talking to yourself, like the, the loser example, like, do I describe myself as losing this one thing or like, let's say you lose a deal. I lost a deal. Or do you describe yourself as a loser? It could be kind of, do you find that self-talk is, is persuasive or does the mind, is the mind strong enough to recognize bullshit when it hears it? You know, there's some great work on self-talk that I talk about in the book, and it's really about kind of, you know, how to help us deal with anxiety. Often we're in a, a situation, we're about to give a presentation, and it's a big, important presentation, or, you know, we're turning something in and it feels like a lot of pressure. And so we may feel very, very anxious. And obviously anxiety doesn't necessarily help us perform at our best. What I think is so interesting in those type of situations, though, is if it wasn't us, if it was a, a friend who was dealing with it, you know, we'd know what we'd say. We'd say, you know, you can do it, do a great job. You know, as, as an outsider, we can really help them and coach them, but we can't do that so much for ourselves. But there's some really nice research that says, hey, actually, if we distance ourselves from uh, the situation a little bit, um, you know, rather than saying, you know, how do I feel about this? But, you know, uh, using our name, you know, you can do it, Jonah, or distancing ourselves a little bit from the situation, using self-talk can actually be a great way to overcome our anxiety, right? Because we're so anxious to it because we're so close, but by using language that makes us feel a little bit further away, a little bit more distant, almost like we would coach another person, it can help us remove that anxiety and perform better. So distancing plus, I think this concept of identity versus action would be great to use. Like, you know, instead of saying I'm a winner, I could say, you know, come on, you're a winner or James is a winner. And then you could distance further. Like people like James are winners. And, uh, uh, I wonder, you know, there's levels of distancing. Like, how do you know what's the right level of distancing to do? And should you include this idea of action versus identity in the self-talk? I don't know if I would necessarily mix those two things, but distance is certainly something that can be helpful when something is aversive, but it's not just that, right? So, so even take something as simple as um, what we should do in a given situation. We're often trying to solve a tough problem. We're often trying to be creative. We often kind of think about what should we do in, in that situation. Some nice research shows that if we actually think about what we could do, so changing the word sh could, should with the word could, that helps us think a little bit more creatively because it helps us think beyond the situation we're in, right? What, what I should do really thinks about kind of rules and right answers and keeps us pretty close or nearby to what we're thinking about. If instead we think about what we could do, well, I mean, I could, could do a million things. Now, maybe not all of them are good ideas, but by thinking about what I could do, it actually helps us get to more creative solutions and, and become better problem solvers. And so even in something like being creative or, or solving problems, subtle shifts in language can have a big impact. Yeah, you know, the, I, I was fascinated too by your, your, the chapter on should versus could. Uh, you know, and, and it seems very useful in, in business because I think of someone like Richard Branson, who he started hundreds of companies and his very first company, of course, was like this little music magazine. So he, he could have, in his brain, he could have said to himself, I'm a music guy, I'm a magazine guy, that's my business, that's my field. But, and, and so when presented with an opportunity, he could say, well, I shouldn't do that, I'm, a, I'm just a music guy, I'm not an airline guy. And so instead of saying, I should be a music guy, he says, well, I could also be an airline guy. I'm wondering if you know, like, a, there's always the research shows something, but, and, and, and it's, you know, supports the claims, but I wonder if you could think of like real life examples in 
you know, famous examples where it was really obvious they were using could instead of should uh, to describe their their decision making. Yeah, I mean, so this is why we analyze data data in the field, right? So I haven't interviewed Richard Branson, so I can't I can't speak to exactly what what he did in his own personal life, but you know, in another study where we were interested in kind of the language that makes uh, movies more successful, we we analyzed thousands, tens of thousands of, of movies. Or, or similarly for songs, um, you know, we, we did some work showing what language makes songs more successful. And so it's not just about one example. What I love about research is kind of, you know, any one example can be right or, or wrong, right? Richard Branson might do something or he might not do something, but just because he did it doesn't mean that thing led him to be successful, right? There may be 10,000 people who did that same thing and, and failed. But, but the nice thing about research is at looking across thousands of examples and and doing rigorous statistical analysis, we can say, okay, you know, did this thing lead to an impact? It doesn't mean that every single time, um, you know, something is hugely successful every time you use this thing, but on average, it moves the needle in, in the right direction. And I think, you know, that's what I find so fascinating about, about language. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, so-and-so is so charismatic. Whenever they get up and they give a speech, everyone's just like, wow, their speech is, is amazing. Or, you know, so-and-so is such a good writer. I wish I could be a, a good writer, you know, but I wasn't, I'm, I'm not a good, a good writer. And we treat it very much like it's something you're born with or, or you're not, but it's not fixed, right? If we understand how to use language, we can all be better speakers. We can all be more impactful writers if we understand the power of magic words. Again, this should, could thing, it reminds me of the differences between you know, deliberate practice in the so-called 10,000 hour rule, the idea that you have to practice the same thing over and over, get coaching. Did you do it right? Fix what you did wrong and then do it again or repeat and do that for 10,000 hours and you'll be the best violinist in the world versus, so that should, oh, I should move my arm this way. I should play the chord this way, but could probably work is more like deliberate play. Like, well, some people do it this way, but I'm going to try this way and I'm going to improv a little bit. It's like almost a difference between like a classical violinist versus a jazz pianist. So could has a little bit more improv to it and, you know, should has a little bit more deliberate practice to it. Could certainly helps us think more broadly, right? It's not about, and by the way, that doesn't mean we implement what we, we could do, right? A lot of the things we could do would be terrible ideas. Just because we could do it doesn't mean it's a good idea. But I think by thinking about what we could do, we get beyond the narrow set of associations that we're thinking about at the moment. Um, and by thinking about a diverse set of things, it can help us come up with a better solution. You know, I've worked with a bunch of companies and organizations around things um, uh, related to ideation or, or coming up with solutions. And, and often, by thinking of an analogous situation, it's not the same situation we're in, by helping you think outside of that narrow situation, you know, it can help us think more broadly. Sometimes a company will have me come in and they'll say, oh, you know, we only want examples uh, for you to talk about that relate to our industry. And, and I usually push back a little bit. I say, look, if you just want to know about things that people in your industry have already done, that's fine. Um, but if you want to look how to, to sort of get ahead and move your industry forward, it would, it would make sense to look beyond your industry, not because you have to do exactly what they did, but by seeing what they did, it can help us think about what's possible, which may then help us reframe what we're, we're setting out to do in a way that leads us to a better solution. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I, I thought that discussion was so fascinating. Similarly, and this is kind of, um, you know, some of the stuff you talk about is about external influence. I'm talking to someone else and I would like 
to elicit some behavior from them. But some of them is about internal, how you, how you, how you focus on things internally could help you think about it. So catching yourself saying should instead of could or could instead of should in some cases will, will affect your own personal decision-making. But you have to be aware of how, you know, when it comes up that you're, oh, I'm using should in this case, but maybe I should try could. Another, a similar one is when you're talking about saying no to people, the difference between can't and don't. Yeah. So if, if someone asks you uh, to go to a, a, a dinner and it's late at night, you could say, I can't, you know, uh, my boss needs me in the office early in the morning, blah, blah, blah. Or you could say, oh, I don't stay up past 9 p.m. It's been a discipline of mine forever. And so, but then it's like you have this, this credo that you're just following you're, you're, and people respect that you're sticking by your, your personal set of values. And so that's why you have to say no to their, their offer. And, and I thought that discussion was very interesting. Yeah. So again, can't and don't are very, very similar, right? You could say, well, why does it matter whether we say one of those versus the other? But but as you talked about a little bit, you know, can't suggest the the locus of control or the agency is is external. I can't do something because something else is is holding me back, right? I can't go out to dinner because I, you know, my boss, I need to deliver something early tomorrow morning. Or, you know, um, uh, I can't, um, you know, there's delicious cake. I can't eat um, this cake because I'm, I'm on a diet. Um, it makes it seem like the locus of control is external. Something's preventing me from doing something. Whereas don't is a little more internal. You know, it's not that I can't go out late, but I don't go out late, right? I'm the one that decided it. Um, it's not that I can't eat chocolate cake, but that I don't eat chocolate cake. Nothing external. There's no external thing preventing me. It's a personal choice. And so whether I want to use can't or don't depends a little bit on the situation. There's some research on, on goals um, and achieving the goals that we want to achieve, whether it's getting in better shape, whether it's you know spending less time on social media, whatever it is, there are always uh, temptations that, that are uh, come across the way. But research finds that if we say, you know, uh, I don't do something, it makes us more likely to stick with our goals because it makes us feel like we are in control. It's not that I can't do something because you know my diet wouldn't let me, but I really want to eat that cake. If I said I don't eat chocolate cake, that's something I chose. I'm more in control of my choices, and so I'm I'm more likely to stick with it. At the same time, though, if we're looking for an out, right? Um, if we're looking, I, I don't want to go out to to dinner late. Um, you know, I, I at work, I I don't want to take on this extra project. There, it's a situation where we want to make it seem like it's external. It's not that I don't want to take on this project, but I can't take on this project because this other person asked me to do this, right? I can't do it because there's already a meeting scheduled at that time. I want to help, but this external thing is preventing me from, from doing it. And, and what I like about that sort of external kind of nobody is, is has two benefits. First, now people can't blame you as, as much. But second, if you would be happy to go to that meeting or do that thing, as long as this external thing was resolved, now you've given that person who asked you for the request an opportunity to resolve that thing. If your boss says, hey, can you do X, Y, Z? And you say, oh, I can't. I already promised this person something. Well, they can come back and say, great, I talked to them uh, and you don't need to do that anymore. Well, now you're happy to do the thing they asked you for. You just couldn't do both of the things at, at once. And so it gives somebody else a more clear signal about what, what you need to be able to do what they want.
The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Why do you think it's more personally pleasing to say, I don't, do, I'm not the type of person who does X. I don't do X. Somehow there's something pleasing and, and authentic about saying, I don't do whatever so that you, you take responsibility. I'm not saying it's bad to say I can't because sometimes you don't want, oh, I can't go to your wedding because I have this other thing. It's be sometimes it's better to put the blame somewhere else, but it's also nice to say, I just don't go to weddings in Hawaii. I don't feel like taking the plane ride for nine hours. So why do you think that the closer you place the onus on yourself, sometimes that is pleasing? Well, let, let's be careful. Pleasing to whom? right? So it's certainly pleasing to the to self, me. right? If I say, I don't do this, it, it makes you feel like you have principles, right? I don't, I don't go to weddings that are more than eight hours away. You know, I never eat after 8 p.m., right? It's pleasing to us because it makes us feel like we are a principled person. We have rules that guide our life and we live by this credo. I would be careful though of telling that friend, well, I don't go to weddings in Hawaii because I don't take flights that are longer than nine hours. They'd say, well, why is it about how long the flight is? Isn't it how much our friendship is worth? And so I'd be a little bit careful um, at, at telling other people that we don't do things, but I agree it can make us feel good. I, I, I agree. And, and look, I've said I can't do X because of someone else a million times. Like I'm more than happy to put the blame elsewhere as much as I can. But it, you know, again, this your your book is such a great basket of tools uh, 
And again, a lot of it depends on context and situation, which tool you use and how you use it and which you use can't versus don't, you should versus could. You could use all of these <laughs> things. It just depends on context and situation. And you describe that, the pros and cons of each word in, in, in the book. One technique, which I have found personally incredibly useful, which you describe in the book, is asking advice. This is like an unbelievably powerful technique. And so can, can you describe that yeah. one? Yeah. I think many of us, if not all of us, have this intuition that asking for advice is a bad idea for a couple of reasons, right? So um, whether we're dealing with a tough problem at work, whether we're having an issue in our personal lives, whatever it might be, we feel like asking for advice will be a burden on somebody else. Maybe they're busy. Um, you know, who knows if they'll be able to help. Or even worse, it'll make us look bad, right? Like if I'm at work and, you know, I ask somebody for advice about how to do something, it makes it seem like I don't know how to do that thing. And so we often just say, well, I'll skip it, right? I don't want to look bad. I don't want to look incompetent. I want to look um, you know, non-knowledgeable, and so I, I won't ask for advice. But a good bit of research actually finds that the opposite is true. So um, they did an experiment, for example, whether they had people interact with um, someone else who they thought was a partner. It was actually a, a research assistant um, uh, in a, on a task. And as part of that task, um, the other person in the interaction either asked someone for advice or, or did not, right? So some people had a partner that asked them for advice and some people had a partner who, who didn't. And what they found is when you thought your partner asked you for advice, well, you thought much more favorably of them. Uh, not only did you think they were smarter and more competent, but you liked them more. And you might say, well, well why is that, right? Why would asking for advice make us look smarter, not, not less smart? And, and part of the reason, very simply, is, well, people like thinking their advice is good, right? Most people think, I give good advice. I'm a smart person. And so if somebody else is smart enough to ask me for advice, well, they must be a smart person because they know I'm a good person to ask. So by making the advice giver feel good about themselves and building on that, that feeling they have that they know what they're talking about, it actually can make us look good as a result. You know, I think there's, there's one thing I would add to that is that when you ask someone for advice, you're giving them status. For, like you're giving them a, a small injection yes. of status. You know, that triggers all sorts of dopamine or serotonin or whatever it is, they like that feeling. Oh, yeah. It's a good feeling. And you're giving them that feeling by asking for advice. You think I'm knowledgeable enough to be worth asking, right? It makes me feel like you think of right. me favorably, which makes me feel good. Yeah. And like, I'm just curious, again, this is such a valuable technique. Have you used it for, let's say you're negotiating a, a consulting agreement. Have you, or, you know, you could say to the company you're doing the, the agreement with, hey, I'm just a professor you're the expert on hiring consultants. Can I ask your advice? If you were me, what would you charge? Yeah. You know, I, I use a related uh, approach that I talk a little bit about in this book and also a little bit in my last book, The Catalyst, which is rather than saying, I want this, I'm saying, hey, which of these two things do you think is better? So you're not only asking them for advice, you're kind of asking them, which one they think is a better fit. And often because you've asked them, they feel like they're in the driver's seat, right? They don't feel like you're forcing them to do something. You feel like you've asked, they've, they've been asked for their opinion. They think about which one they like better and they end up being much more likely to, to go along. And so I think questions can be, can be really powerful. You know, there's a whole chapter on, on questions in the book. And 
I, I think often we think, well, questions are just about collecting information, but questions do a, a lot more than that, right? They shape what other people think about us, whether they like us or not. You know, asking certain types of questions, like follow-up questions, um, make us seem responsive, which make people like us more. Even the right questions can be used to, to deepen social connection. And so questions can be really powerful if we use them the right way. And by the way, you're right. Like I've neglected that that section up till now. That is like that section on questions is going to be my Bible for social interaction now. Like I needed that chapter more than anything else. Like from anything from meeting people to how to ask questions to the ideas behind asking follow-up questions. That is such a valuable uh, uh, section. Another section, and I know um, we're, we're pressed for time, so I'll, I'll, I'll this, you know I'll ask about this. You, you talk about how definitive one should be. So for instance, it better, particularly for, for content, better to be definitive as opposed to hedging. And I agree, as, as a writer of many books myself and, and, and many blog posts that have gone viral for better or for worse, definitives go viral, hedges don't. And I've seen this over and over again and I've given this advice but describe a little bit what, yeah. what you mean and what, what you What we're talking learned. about here is the language of certainty or, or confidence. And one reason we think that certain people are more charismatic or one reason that we, we listen to some people more is, is they just seem so certain. Right? I, lo I love seeing this with politicians or sort of gurus or startup founders. You know, you hear them talk and you go, if you look at the content of what they're saying, you know, why are people following this person? What they're saying doesn't make any sense. But if, if you look at the way they're saying what they're saying, they often speak with a great deal of certainty. They often speak like something is obvious or must be true. And anyone who thought otherwise would, would be crazy. And so it's hard not to, because they're so certain, because they seem so confident, it's hard not to, not to be per persuaded. And so research shows, for example, that in a financial advising uh, capacity, people are more likely to choose confident financial advisors, even if their advice is no better, because they go, wow, this person seems like they know what they're talking about. And, and so hedges are one example of this. We, we often say something, and I, I hesitate here because if we looked at the transcript of this interview, I probably hedged a bunch, but um, people often say things like, I think this, or this may be true, or possibly that, or you know, this seems this way to me. And while we do this, because it's easy, it's easy to sort of couch uh, our language in, in one thing or another, it often undermines our, our impact. We've done a, a bunch of research in the context of, of hedges that shows that hedging makes us less persuasive because it makes us seem like we're less confident or certain uh, about what, what we're talking about. And if we seem more certain, if, if we don't even know what we're talking about, why should anybody listen, right? Why should they follow us? But what I will say, though, is, is certain hedges are actually more persuasive than, than others. So there's a difference, for example, if, if I said, this seems good versus this seems good to me, right? One is a general hedge, this seems good. The other is this seems good to me, suggesting I, in my own opinion, uh, this, this, this seems good. And, and what we find is that that actually reduces some of the, the hurt of hedges. And, and the reason why is people are willing to attach themselves to something, right? If, if this person's willing to say, this is how I feel, then where they seem more certain, and so we're more likely to be persuaded. Well, Jonah, Jonah Berger, author of Magic Words, Contagious, and The Catalyst, and so many other great books that, that we've spoken about, this book really is a such a great guide to so many critical aspects of life, like how to best say no, how to have social interactions, how to influence people, how to 
make content go viral and, and so many other, how to ask questions, so many other things. I can't recommend this enough. It's, I'm, I've been taking notes. I've, I've got half the book pages folded over. Thank you for writing this. Maybe you'll come back on again. I'm going to, I'm sure I'm going to have even more questions. So maybe we can schedule another time when you come on and we could, we could keep talking about it, but thank you so much for, for coming on the show once again. And the book is magic words. What day is it released? March 7th, March 7th. Okay, great. Well, Great book. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.